Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host as always. We have three topics for you today. First off, we're going to cover the iPad Pro reviews that came out earlier today, Wednesday, on the day that we're recording. Uh, Secondly, we'll do our question of the week, which is our regular feature where we uh, take it in turns to do some research and then answer a question. And, And this week's question is really about the two new products that Apple has launched uh, this year before the iPad Pro, that is, um, the new Apple TV and then before that, the Apple Watch. And specifically, we're going to talk about the potential for each of these products and the differences between them and uh, what it would take for each of them to be successful. And then our third topic will address cord cutting, um, which is a phenomenon that I've covered quite a bit on the Beyond Devices blog um, and wrote an update on this week. And so we'll kind of dig into some of those numbers a little bit, but also look forward a bit in terms of how that might evolve and, and what it would take for cord cutting to accelerate and for the nature of cord cutting to change and then become perhaps a more mainstream phenomenon. So those are our three topics for today. We'll kick off with the iPad Pro reviews. And they came out this morning, the usual sort of suspects had reviews from um, John Gruber at Daring Fireball to TechCrunch to um, Tech Pinions, which I contribute to. Ben Baharin uh, reviewed it there um, to a whole host of others, including all the major um, business publications and tech publications. So um, it was interesting, you know, oftentimes with these reviews, I feel like there's a temptation to, for everybody to try to think of something different to say, which often means that you get some fairly gratuitous differences between reviews where people kind of go out on ridiculous limbs to try to find something new and different to say and and often end up undermining their core messages as a result. I felt like this time around there was a remarkable amount of consistency between the reviews. Um, Some of the key themes that kind of stood out to me, one was just that nobody was quite able to figure out what this new animal called an iPad Pro is. That seemed to kind of come up again and again, that people were sort of not quite sure how to describe it. It's clearly been positioned as being a bit like a laptop, but not really. Um, There were some interesting remarks that Tim Cook made in an interview with the Daily Telegraph in the UK where he essentially asked, you know, why does anybody need to buy a PC anymore when you have a device like this in the world? Um, And suggested that for many people this could replace a PC, which then lent an angle to a lot of the people that wrote about it, which was kind of evaluating it on that basis, which I think is a bit of a mistake. Um, but that was kind of a consistent theme. But a lot of people saying, is it this? Is it that? Yes, seemed to be the answer. So that was kind of one of the major themes that, that seemed to come through with a lot of them, which is funny because, you know, the iPad as a category is not new. Um, but obviously the iPad Pro is a new version of it. And it has some important differences like the keyboard and, and stylus that come from Apple as opposed to being optional extras from third parties. But Aaron, what were some of your thoughts and, and things that you picked up on from those reviews I, I like the way you summarize it I think that is I, I think that is true I um, one of the things that stood out to me was the general disappointment in the keyboard not the physical keyboard I, everybody who typed on it seemed to like it but just the regular use of a keyboard with an iPad in iOS seemed to be a disappointing experience for every, every reviewer. In fact, I didn't right. remember reading a single review talking about how the keyboard was an enjoyable thing. Mm. And again, not talking about the, the physical keyboard. That was, the, that was what surprised me, actually, was that the physical keyboard was pleasant for everybody that used it. Even John Gruber, who was really picky about keyboards, commented on how he found himself pretty comfortable with it really quickly. Mm. But it's the software side of using the keyboard that seemed to disappoint everybody in that it was just really limited and there was some wonkiness. Gruber actually had the most thorough description of how the keyboard works with the iPad Pro and 
you know, he pointed out even just outright bugs, like paging down with the spacebar in a Safari ends up skipping a huge chunk of content each time you do it. And, mm. and those are odd details. In fact, uh, I can't remember who else said it. Maybe it was Jason Snell who pointed out that these are weird. These indicate that not very many people at Apple were actually using a keyboard with the iPad Pro before they hmm. shipped it out. Yeah, yeah. Some of that stuff seemed like pretty obvious shortcomings, and a lot of it felt like you know. And I've used a fair number of Bluetooth keyboards with iPads in the past, and some of the things he said kind of echoed things I'd seen there. And, and some of the other keyboards actually do better at some of this stuff. So um, he noted, I think, that there wasn't a home button on the keyboard, which there is on a lot of the third-party keyboards. And there's a Logitech one in particular that a number of the reviewers also reviewed, which they said actually worked better in that regard than, than Apple's own smart keyboard. So that was kind of interesting to me that they hadn't learned the lessons of some of the third-party keyboards. Um, but yeah, some of the things that John Gruber mentioned were things that I've noticed before. But I think especially when you get a bigger device and a bigger keyboard, you're sitting that much further away. The transition from keyboard to touching the screen is that much more um, of a leap, essentially, I guess. And so having to constantly touch the screen when what you really want to do is work with a keyboard or something like a trackpad, which this doesn't have, um, there's some awkwardness there. And I found that quite striking um, in John Gruber's review specifically. Um, conversely, uh, the stylus seemed to be very well reviewed everywhere. And I was kind of surprised. I mean, Joanna Stern at the Wall Street Journal, who's generally a big fan of you know the surface line, um, you know, she said the stylus was better than the Surface stylus. And that's a surprise because, you know, we're on version four of the Surface Pro now. The stylus has been around at Microsoft for quite a while. They've had several years to iterate on it, make it better and so on. And for her to say that this in its first version is better was really quite striking to me. Well, and the latency issues seem to be one of the most impressive things. I mean, right. people talked about the, the, the sort of heft of it, the feel of using it. But latency has always been a problem with touchscreens. And um, with a stylus in a professional setting, obviously, you can't really have any latency. And that, I think, was one of the biggest accomplishments. You know, I, because the, the engineering behind this is, is built into the iPad Pro, not just into the, into the pencil. Mm. Because the, the the screen of the iPad Pro talks to the pencil in a way that allows the latency to be really low. So that way it doesn't right. have to communicate everything via Bluetooth necessarily. And, mm. and anyway, that and obviously I don't know the engineering behind it, but that seems to be essential to the, how well the, the pencil works, which is really... Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I suspect like the iPad Air will get that support, you know, in version 3. For example, right, but right. Uh, I, I, honestly, I you know it's funny because as Apple does things, there are always big companies, but the companies that are much smaller than Apple that are always at risk. And I think mm -hmm. the latest one that is kind of at risk is Wacom with their tablets. Right, like yeah, I, you know, it, it, there's a there was a piece, and I think it was the Guardian with Johnny Ive talking about how all of his designers are switching over to iPad Pros, but not from not from external like slabs that you plug into your computer, but from paper. Right. So it yeah, took it took pads. Yeah, right? yeah. It took this yeah. to make a switch to an electronic sketching tool, mm. and uh, and plus, I mean, there's already an app where you can use the iPad Pro as an external input device for your Mac, where it's mm. essentially a, a you know a sketching tablet for your Mac and. If it really is as great as it is, I, I think Apple is going to um, put the hurt on companies that make, you know, 
these external tablets like Wacom. Right, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because those external devices, you still have the same disconnect that you have with a mouse or a keyboard where your, your input is in one place and the result is somewhere else, right? And then right. one of the advantages of touch has always been it's the immediacy of it, the, the direct connection between the input and the result and the fact that it's right there and you're actually interacting with the object itself rather than a metaphor, as it were. And so that's kind of interesting. Um, one of the things that, that did come up was, you know, and, and again, it's inevitable, both the way that Apple positioned it ahead of time, and especially these remarks that Tim Cook has made, and then the way the Surface Pro has been positioned about replacing the laptop and so on. That was a, that was a kind of a bar that a lot of people kind of measured the iPad Pro against. And in pretty much all cases, it seemed to come up short, um, you know, as a laptop replacement. And I think... Um, that's kind of interesting. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think Apple was claiming that it could replace a laptop for every task for every one, and I think that's probably the important thing here. But, you know, there's huge leaps forwards in terms of power. You know, from benchmark perspective, the new iPad Pro benchmarks very similarly to some recent MacBooks. Um, it's not a matter of power; it's more a matter of the way that you actually work with it um, and interact with certain things on the screen and. Um, I know you from talking beforehand, you had some thoughts about that too. Well, that's the interesting thing about it is that this is not a hardware constraint that keeps it from being a laptop replacement. Hmm. Um, it's a, and, and really, this is all kind of embedded in the conversation we're having about the keyboard is it seems like the entire constraint is software based. I, I think right. the, 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 the challenge is that the iPad Pro is based on iOS. And when the iPad first launched, being based on iOS and the iPhone metaphor just sort of, you know, inflated to a bigger screen size. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot that changed in the way people use computing devices. For example, file management is not a thing in iOS. It's not, I mean, you can, right. you can get Dropbox or Google Drive or other apps to do file right. management, but it's not essential to using an iPad the way it is to using a Mac. Right. And, and then the other thing is, you know, the, the sort of multitasking approach of having multiple windows open versus either switching entirely between apps or having two apps working side by side. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think there's just such an endurance in the Windows mouse-driven environment that, that the, the iOS doesn't seem to fully replace. Yeah, I, I know I, I would not be buying... I mean, if I was replacing my laptop right now, I would not be buying an iPad Pro. And I think it has mostly to do with the software, not the hardware. The truth is, I think the hardware is awesome. And, right. But it's the software that's holding that's holding me back. And yeah, on one side, I find that encouraging because software is a lot easier to fix. Mm -hmm. But... But the iOS metaphors that are in place are so fundamental. Yeah. It would take a pretty big upheaval software-wise to make me willing to replace the laptop with the iPad. Yeah, this is one of the interesting things, right? Because you've got this world where you know Microsoft has increasingly gone to a single operating system that works admittedly very differently on different devices, but it's now Windows 10 across everything. Google's got Android and Chrome OS, but it sounds like Chrome OS is eventually going to be wrapped into Android now. Um, you know, Apple's kept these two different operating systems and then within the iOS world, though, has created new flavors of iOS for new devices. So Watch has WatchOS, the new Apple TV has tvOS and so on. Um, in some ways, it would have been easier for Apple with the iPad Pro to have created iPad Pro OS or whatever, um, you know, to, to take the kernel of iOS, to take that, you know, 
fundamental concept, um, but uh, you know, significantly change it to reflect the fact that it was going to be used with a stylus and a keyboard. But because the iPad Pro is sold without either a keyboard or a stylus, it still has to work as an iPad first and foremost. And that's kind of a challenge that Apple has that it has to deal with that some of the others don't necessarily have to deal with, which is it wants this to be an iOS device. It wants it to be an iPad. Uh, so it has to work in all those same ways. None of the basic ways in which you interact with an iOS device can change, and yet they have to change. When you attach a keyboard, it has to behave differently. Um, and to your point, they can fix some of this stuff, obviously, in, in the software, you know, in, in future updates. Um, but you know, it almost needs a different version of iOS to be running when you're using the keyboard with it, especially. Um, and I'd argue that same version should probably run in most cases with third-party Bluetooth keyboards attached to smaller iPads as well, because I think you'd want many of the same things to happen there. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting challenge that they have, where they want it to be both the same and different at the same time, and they haven't quite got that balance right. Um, and in some ways, by having this be an iPad rather than some new product category, you create all these expectations about how it's going to work the same way, and yet you want it to have all this new functionality, and you have these two dedicated accessories, which iPads have never had, that force it to work in new ways. And so yeah, it's an interesting sort of challenge and attention that you know they're working their way through, but they, they seem to have got some things wrong here in the first version. Yeah, and I don't think I, I do think Apple's working on this. I mean, to engage in some speculation, I, I think Apple's already well ahead on understanding these problems and working on them. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're going to be updates to iOS 9 that fix right. them. I mean, there will be some there will be some sanding down the rough edges as far as right. like how the, the keyboard works. The space bar thing in yeah, Safari the, or whatever. Exactly. But I think the fundamental changes are going to come with iOS 10. It started showing up in server logs now. Mm -hmm. There are websites getting visits right. from iOS 10 devices. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but, you know... The, the truth is, when that moment comes, there's going to be some interesting reactions. I think there are going to be people mm. frustrated with how Apple's changing the metaphors or the particular user interface metaphors that they're choosing. I think a lot of people are going to point out the fact that Microsoft was ahead of Apple on trying to figure mm. out how to hybridize this kind of a device right. as far as software yeah. is concerned. I, I think you'll see Apple lifting some of the good ideas that Microsoft has implemented. Um, yeah. But uh, I do think it's all, you know you know, eight or nine months away before yes. we really, it's it's really its next WWDC before we, right. I think we're going to see any of Apple's solutions to this. But they're clearly committed. I mean, like you said, Tim Cook has messaged not just recently, but multiple times that, that iPad Pro seems to be the way they think computing is headed. Yeah. And uh, I think iOS 10 is going to be the reveal on that. Yeah, no, I think that'll be really interesting. And, and, you know, interesting to see what happens to iPad sales and Mac sales as that transition works its way through, too. Um, one thing I thought was slightly bizarre was there's, there's one iPad Pro ad out there now, so a video, you know, TV ad for the iPad Pro. And it's, you know, Apple's usual production values and so on. But it, to me, it's a baffling choice as far as how to advertise this device. It's, um, you know, it spends 90% of the ad showing sort of what's essentially a startup navigation app on steroids. You know, it's probably right. not even based on a real app. Um, you know, all these images of stars exploding and stuff, and there's nothing about that that really conveys to you anything about the iPad Pro and why it's better. You know, the last five minute, five seconds or whatever, you get somebody scribbling on the screen with a, with a pencil. Um, but, uh, you know, other than the impression that it's big, 
um, which is kind of the tack that they took with some of the original iPhone 6 ads as well. Um, you don't really get the sense of the benefit. You know, why is it good to have a bigger device? And what does the keyboard and the pencil do for you? And, and that kind of thing. So I, I really hope they come out with more ads that do a better job of articulating the value proposition because um, there's a lot there from the reviews. It's clear that there's a lot that is good about it, but the ad doesn't do a good job of communicating that. No, all it, all it really tells you that it's, is that it's more. Right. <laughs> right. It's more. Mm-hmm. Who knows what that means? But it's more. Yeah, exactly. No, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. But Apple's always been really spare in the way that they mm. approach their marketing. They, they yeah. take a really core essential message and and then trim it down further. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Um, okay, well, let's move on from that. I mean, I do think it's interesting, and this is kind of a segue into our next topic. Um, some of the recent watch ads have been fantastic. I've loved them. I mean, some of the yeah. best ads that Apple's done for quite a while, these little short segments of people on these sort of multicolored backgrounds, um, you know, having these short little interactions with the watch with great music behind them, really fun little ads. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that it didn't show up until, you know, when did the watch launch? Several months ago, anyway, at this point. Um, you know, they didn't show up until sort of six months in. Um, and, uh, you know, it seemed to take a while for Apple to get to the point where they were really communicating the value proposition of the watch in that way. There were some subtle hints at it early on, but it was more kind of day in the life of rather than kind of focus on a specific feature. And that kind of takes us to, to our next topic, which is our question of the week, which is really about Apple's two new products before the iPad Pro, the watch and the Apple TV, and kind of their potential. You know, are these going to be huge? Are they going to be, um, you know, at the highest possible end of our expectations? You know, another iPhone, are they going to be much smaller than that? Which of them might be bigger? Which challenges do they face and so on? So Aaron, you spent time working on these topics this week. I guess let's start out with sort of that point about, you know, what's the ceiling here in terms of market size? You know. Is it even realistic to think about these things as, you know, the next iPhone, or should we be kind of moderating expectations a little bit in terms of potential addressable market? Yeah, so let's talk about watch first, and then we'll talk about the Apple TV. Um, you know, I, I always think it's really funny the way Apple Watch sales and all the guesses that are made about Apple Watch sales are always compared to either smartwatches or wearables, because that is not, I think, the market that Apple is tracking itself against. I think Apple's using the watch market generally um, because that's the way they position it. I mean, they are clearly trying to replace watches. They're not trying to replace smartwatches, and they're not trying mm-hmm. to replace Fitbits. They're trying to replace people's actual watches. Um, and so, but this is the way Apple approaches, I think, any new product when they're going after an entirely new category. You know, they bite off the big end of it. Even when Apple talked about the iPhone originally when they launched it, you know, they talked about sort of the smartphone market, but they set their sights on the phone market, the cell phone market generally, not just what what back then we called smartphones, which is, you know, like Windows phone devices and Blackberries. But, uh, but the, uh, the watch market um, relative to Apple as a company is not that big. Right. Um, in the U.S., based on some information I found, it's about $11 billion a year in, in watch sales. Globally, it's somewhere around $45 billion. Mm-hmm. To put the, and that's total sales, not profits. And to put that into perspective, right. Apple did $53 billion in profit for its fiscal year of 2015. Right. Okay. I, I mean, so its profit on mm-hmm. iPhone and its other product lines was bigger than all of the cumulative sales of watches globally. 
mm-hmm. for for the last year. And so this is, I mean, even setting the watch against its largest potential market size, that market is less than Apple's profits in a year. <laughs> so right, okay. So, so the, I guess uh, so. Is, I mean, two possible counterpoints to that. One is, you know, does Apple get people to buy a watch that haven't bought a watch for a long time or ever? And, you know, does the average selling price of watches go up as people go from, say, a cheap Swatch or whatever to an Apple Watch? I guess those are two ways that it could expand that addressable market. Yeah, and I I think in regards to that, you know, one of the interesting things is that around the the, the sale of digital versus analog watches is roughly one-thirds, two-thirds. It depends on which country you're looking at based on what I found. Mm -hmm. But but two-thirds of people buying watches tend to prefer analog watch faces. Right, um, and I, I realize the Apple Watch has analog analog watch faces to choose from, but there's the, there seems to be something about the way people buy watches where they prefer much more traditional devices, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I think for every non watch wear, because I'm not I I don't wear a watch, but I I don't know I'm I, I'm probably going to get the next Apple Watch. I'm just sort of guessing, and. Mm. Uh, you know that I expect will come out in six months or whatever and when that happens I'll be somebody who hasn't worn a watch for years all of a sudden wearing a watch again but I think for every one of me there are holdouts who would prefer a traditional watch who don't see the value in a smartwatch right now and so I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that that's actually going to result in much growth of the overall watch Mm -hmm. market Right, so the current market size is probably a reasonable proxy, even though there may be some kind of back and forth within that Right, there will be people moving in and out but... Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that there's going to be. I, I, I don't picture the the market for watches growing unless Apple fundamentally changes the product, which is a thing we'll talk about a little bit later in the question here. Yeah. Okay. So TV market size, kind of what's the addressable market there for the Apple TV? Well, so the thing about the Apple TV is, I, I think you know this is a hard thing to measure too. We could compare it against like the game console market. I'm not sure that that's the best one. We could compare it against the, the sort of the set-top device market, you know, like the Roku's. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the right place either to get a sense. And that's only because these are game consoles are oriented toward hardcore gamers. I don't think that that's the way we ought to think about the Apple TV. The mm-hmm. set-top boxes... They are very limited devices compared to what this new Apple TV can do. And so I think if I were Apple, the way I'd be thinking about market size is just numbers of is the number of households in the countries where right. the Apple TV is selling. Because I, yeah, pretty much everybody has a television. And nowadays, pretty much everybody has a flat screen TV with HDMI inputs. I mean, that's mm-hmm. certainly not universal, but it's easily the majority of households. Especially in the markets Apple's targeting it, right now. Exactly. And so if you look at that, and this was just really rough math, but the number of households that Apple's addressing currently with the Apple TV is somewhere around 300 million households. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, that's you know to get 300 million households to buy an Apple TV, that's not going to happen, right? But that is, I think, the upper end of what Apple mm-hmm. could expect in terms of volume on the Apple TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, that now, I do want to say though, um, that 300 million household number does not include China because the Apple TV is not a product at all positioned for Chinese customers right now. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's just not. It doesn't have content deals you know it doesn't it just it doesn't have enough that's compelling 
in order for Chinese people to want to buy the Apple TV. But that uh, I think that is going to change. And mm -hmm. if China comes on board, that actually more than doubles the number of households that Apple could be selling an Apple TV to. Mm. Um, so that's exciting on yeah. that end. Yeah. I mean, to okay. put that in perspective, Apple total is sold, was it a half a billion iPhones, I think, is about where we are. And uh, I don't think they're going to sell that many Apple TVs for sure. Right. Right. Okay. Um, I guess with both of these devices, to one of the big success factors or, or something that could hold them back, conversely, if it doesn't go well, is, is their ability to attract developers and in turn those developers you know, making really great apps for these devices. Because Apple TV out of the box, okay, it, it connects to iTunes, but so did the old Apple TV. Kind of what makes this one new and different is all the third-party applications now. Uh, including games, and obviously the Apple Watch is, you know, interesting out of the box again. But as with, you know, most of Apple's devices these days, kind of the third-party app store and, and the potential for developers to create more value around them is, is going to be a big part of the value proposition. So, kind of, how do you see those evolving for these two categories? Yeah, and this is a funny thing for Apple. If you look at Apple's long history, I mean, the the thing that made Apple sort of break out as a company was the iPod, for which. You know, which was a platform that developers had no access to whatsoever. Right, mm -hmm. and um, and then the iPhone completely turned that on its head, and 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 turned the entire phone market on that on its head because phones were app delivery devices, mm -hmm. um, and Apple realizes that that's where there's all this power, and that's why they care so much about the developer relationships that they have, and certainly watch and TV and the Apple TV are all about developers. As far as the watch mm -hmm. is concerned. Uh, yeah, well, for both of these, I think it's worth talking about sort of like the the biggest problem that developers are facing on the uh, with the product and where the biggest upside I think exists for developers. Uh, as far as the watch goes, I think the biggest problem hands down is the screen. I, I think uh, I, I think the screen size is just flummoxing app developers right now. I think this mm -hmm. is why we don't yet have a killer app on the watch because the screen size is so limiting. As far as what kinds of apps you can deliver, um, I just I, I think developers just haven't figured out what to do about that yet. Um, Apple can't really change that is the problem. Like there's like they can't have a bigger screen, at least not a meaningfully bigger one on the watch. And as long as that's the problem, developers are still going to see this as a roadblock for making meaningful apps. Um, I'm not sure how they fix that. Um, I, I think if there's right. a way around it, it might be with changing the sensors built into the watch, I think, or adding to them. I think there might be ways to make that more meaningful. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one area of upside for developers is, is health-related stuff. Um, I think that's mm -hmm. where developers could do really cool things, and they really haven't had the opportunity to until WatchOS 2 came out. And so I think we might see some creative health things. Um, for example, there's already an exercise app for the Apple TV that will, if you're wearing a watch, will take the heart rate from your watch and put it on the screen of your TV. Right. That's cool. And yeah. so yeah. Uh, I think stuff like that. And then the other thing where I think the watch has the potential to be really big is in the Internet of Things market. Mm -hmm. With so many different things, products now being connected to the Internet, some ridiculous, but some meaningful and cool. This is a mm -hmm. really fresh, uh, very underdeveloped market right now. 
and uh, right. being able to control all these like devices in your house from your watch is potentially huge. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another area of upside for developers. Right. What about the TV and developers? Yeah, I mean, I, I, based on what I've read, based on what I've looked into, and based on complaints I've read in particular, the remote is easily the biggest constraint that developers are facing with the Apple TV. Mm. Uh, it, it is a limited device. And because Apple has made a really big deal out of the fact that any game or app of any kind has to, it, it can't require an external uh, MFI controller. It has to, like made for eye controller, has to use, you have to be able to interact with the app or the game using the Siri remote. Um, that is really limiting, um, which is kind of a shame because on the phone, the way the way a touchscreen works is you can make the interactions look however you want as long as a touchscreen can generate them, which is kind of the sky's the limit. Mm-hmm. And that's right. you know, the the Siri remote is not a touchscreen; it has fixed buttons and tr- it does have the trackpad, but that's not mm-hmm. visual in any way. And as right. long as that's the problem, developers are going to be feel are going to feel very limited. And it's it's interesting to think how Apple, whether or not Apple's going to stick to its guns on this. Because, for example, um, Guitar Hero uh, is now available on the new Apple TV, just today, in mm-hmm. fact. You can you can get the app uh, on the Apple TV. But it actually requires the external guitar-shaped controller um, right. to play. You can't use the Siri remote to play Guitar Hero mm-hmm. on the Apple TV. And, in fact... A lot of people are sensing some hypocrisy on Apple's part here because they sort of bent their own rule for a big developer. Yeah, they originally, they, there was one they kind of went back and forth on, wasn't it, in the lead up to availability where they kind of first said that this was possible, then they said it wasn't possible. Yeah, and so I think that Apple may loosen its requirements on the control on the controller thing, but I can see why at the start they've said Siri remote only because it just opens up the opportunity for way too much confusion and also a lot of disappointment. If I was to buy an Apple TV, if I'm an average consumer and I don't appreciate the fact or didn't know that I'd need to buy, you know, an external $50 MFI controller, uh, I would be pretty mad about that. And so I think Mm -hmm. Apple's main focus right now is customer expectations as they, as those can be managed, I can picture Apple loosening up on the remote. Um, as far as upside goes, I think gaming is the biggest potential upside, ironically, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. especially casual gaming, I think that's potentially huge for developers. Yeah. And also the augmented media idea. I think what the MLB app um, does that they showed off, mm-hmm. the way you know you can watch a baseball game and see this augmented version of the game with all right. of these extra right. stats and the way it's interactive. I, I think that's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that seems like a, a great way that these things could move forward. And something we talked about briefly last week where most of the video apps still haven't built that kind of functionality in. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement there. I think what's um, interesting just generally is that these are two pretty big constraints for developers that they are not, have not been accustomed to before now. I mean, mm-hmm. with, when the iPhone created the App Store market and then Apple moved into the iPad and anybody who had been developing for the Mac, they really didn't feel constrained necessarily in the way that they made. Mm-hmm. I mean, people did, I guess that's not true. People did originally complain about the touchscreen is limiting, but then people realized how how sort of gigantic it really could be and the number of interactions available. 
This is different. And the size mm -hmm. of the screen on the watch and the nature of the Siri remote, um, you know, these simply don't have the same amount of flexibility that a touchscreen has. And it's a new problem for Apple when it comes to its developers. I don't think they've had any product ever that has had the, the same constraint issues from the developer side. Right. And I think, I think I'd probably add one more thing on the constraint side to um, the watch, which is just speed. Like even in native OS apps, it's still really slow to go from launching an app to actually having it function the way that you want it to, to function. You know, it's a bit quicker now than it was in the past. But, um, you know, you talked about IoT. You know, imagine trying to control your Nest it's slow enough on my phone, but it's even slower, you know, imagining the same interaction on the watch, you know, to control my Nest thermostat from my watch, you know, uh, launching the app, waiting for it to come up, then going to the right thermostat and changing it and so on, you know. Um, you want those interactions to be kind of instantaneous, and they're really not at this point. And that's a challenge with a lot of these things is it's actually quicker still to pull your phone out and do them there. Um, and so I often find the only times when I use the apps on my watch are when my phone isn't available for whatever reason. Um, you know, I'm using it to play back video right now, and so I don't want to interrupt the video to do something else. And and that's, you know, kind of problematic. Um, you know, we need apps on the watch that can really function better than their iPhone counterparts, and I feel like that hasn't really happened yet. Yeah, I do think that's going to be the biggest change you see with the next version of the watch is speed. Mm -hmm. I, I think, and that's just based on product histories of other products that Apple has made. I mean, if you look, yeah. for example, the difference between the first gen and second gen iPads, speed was a huge, huge improvement. Yeah. And especially with how great Apple's getting at designing silicon. Um, yeah. I think... Oh, yeah. I mean, that was something we talked about a few weeks ago. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 think the, I think the next watch is going to be much, much faster. Mm-hmm. Are there other kind of challenges that you see each of them? I mean, we talked about kind of challenges as regards developers, but are there other challenges that you see these two categories dealing with and, and having to overcome? Yeah, I think so. As far as the watch goes, I think the biggest challenge first is just this. This it's, it's, it's essentially the problem developers are having, but from the customer side, which is that it's, there aren't really any killer apps yet. I, I mean, we talked mm -hmm. about this when WatchOS 2 launched, that we were kind of surprised that that somebody out there hadn't designed or figured out a killer app for the watch yet, and that it wasn't there, you know, as an early sort of shining star, um, the way some of the early apps on the iPhone were on the iPad, and and I'm that's a legitimate concern for the watch right now, in my opinion, is that nobody's yet come up with a killer app, and whether or not that's through health or or through Internet of Things or through new sensors. Um, new ways to interact. I don't know if, if, you know, opening up Siri to third parties, for example, might make a difference. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to be a really unique challenge for the watch um, versus Apple's other products. They don't have this problem on other products where developers mm -hmm. are having a hard time coming up w with ideas of what to do with the device. Right. Um, I think right. another challenge for the watch, at least temporarily, is price. Um, I think the entry prices are still too high for most people. The average selling price of a watch right now globally is around $150. And, uh, and bumping people up to 350 or 400 really, I, th I think of the entry price as 400 because I think most people prefer the larger watch. Mm. Um, that's a huge leap. Um, this yeah. is not a, a unique problem. Apple had the exact same problem with the iPod when it first launched. 
um, mm-hmm. that it was, it, it, sure, it was a more powerful device, but, you know, it was not so much better than a Discman, <laughs> right? That right. it deserved that mm-hmm. much of a price premium. Mm-hmm. And I think, but I say that's a short-term problem because I really think right. Apple is going to move down the down the price ladder. In fact, I I think the next sport watch that they announce is going to be a hundred dollars cheaper, just as a guess. Um, I think another interesting, unique challenge is is expanding the meaningful health information that the watch can provide. Mm-hmm. Tim Cook. Do you think they could do that within the watch itself? I mean, this was something that Tim Cook kind of mentioned in that same Daily Telegraph interview where he made the comments about the PC. He said something about, you know, we don't need to put the Apple Watch through the FDA approval process, but we might put something adjacent to the watch through that process, which has kind of sparked a whole round of speculation as to what else that might be. But but do you think it's something that Apple would either build into the watch? Do you think we're talking about accessories to the watch? Do you think we're talking about third-party stuff? It's hard to say. And I also wonder if it's software-oriented. I mean, I mean because mm. really, it's if you're going to be making health judgments for people, then that's where the FDA steps in. The, the watch right, right now doesn't make judgments for you. It just provides bare information, and then you make the judgments yourself. Yeah, it's, it's two things, right? It's diagnostics and treatment. Those are the two things that medical devices can't do without approval from the FDA. Yeah, and it's hard to imagine Apple doing a treatment product. And so yeah. it seems like it'll be a diagnostic product. And that being the case, right. I, I, I imagine that more being a software thing than a hardware thing, where Apple mm. collects information from the watch and actually gives you feedback through a software product that is FDA approved. Um, right. But this would be, for example, you know, a website you log into, you know, not unlike the way you can log into your Fitbit account. And, you know, that's not providing diagnostics, but I could picture Apple wanting to tackle that. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, they, the truth is they've been in situations like this in the past where they sort of hint at something and then it never really materializes. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you never know. I mean, this is one comment in one interview and whether he meant... You know, if we happen to do something else, you know, theoretically somewhere down the line, then right. you know, or did he have something specific in mind, and we don't even know that. Yeah, so. I, I, I do picture partnerships being the more likely vehicle mm-hmm. for that, only because it's getting much further outside Apple's core competency to have them right. being doctors or nurses. Yeah, and it gets tough to innovate quickly too when you're constantly having to wait for regulatory approvals. Absolutely, and so it, you know, I could picture them forming more partnerships with hospitals, um, insurance companies, or others who are the ones doing this this part of the, mm. the, the health analysis. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay. Anything else that you want to cover here on these two? Well, I think the unique challenges on the TV, mm. um, this is also really unique. I mean, the unique problem with the watch is that developers haven't figured it out yet. And Apple hasn't had a right. problem with that with its products in the past. And the unique challenge mm-hmm. that Apple has on the TV front is the way content, television content is generated and managed. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they it's a mess. It's a huge, ridiculous mess. And everybody mm-hmm. knows this, but this is the core feature of the Apple TV. I mean, the, the core right. essential feature of the Apple TV is that it can deliver the stuff you want to watch in, in a way that, you know, is convenient and fun and enjoyable. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it's so heavily constrained by the content producers and the way this stuff is licensed. And, and that's, it's a really kind of powerless position for Apple to be in. They haven't been this powerless relative to the core essential, 
you know, value of a product. Even back when they, you know, launched the iPod and then they started the iTunes Music Store, you know, that was actually really huge and exciting. And it wasn't, it, Apple wasn't sort of constrained. If anything, they had kind of broken the gates open as far as digital music, music delivery went. Um, but the truth is now all of the television and, and movie content producers are scared to death that Apple will own the market the way it does for music, or at least right. has until streaming all of a sudden became mm-hmm. a thing. And so th- I think this is one of the unique challenges. I think it, it's a, the Apple TV is an interesting product to me because Apple is relatively powerless on some of its key issues. One of them is content, like we just talked about. Mm-hmm. But then the other one is that they're still constrained by the fact that you have to plug this thing into an HDMI port and then right. use your television remote to fiddle with the inputs to bring up the Apple TV on the screen. Mm-hmm. And I don't doubt that that drives Johnny Ive and the other designers there totally crazy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's one of those things where I think that's the biggest, single biggest argument for Apple making a television that's integrated as opposed to just making the Apple TV box. I still think on balance it's a bad idea, especially right now. Yeah, me too. Um, but that's the single biggest argument for them eventually doing something. But the, the content thing is a big deal and actually a bigger deal, I'd say, for now. I mean, you know, for somebody who, you know, only has two inputs, switching inputs occasionally is not the end of the world. And to the extent that Apple eventually launches some kind of content service, you know, it'll only ever be a single input and then it actually becomes a lot less important anyway. Right. But their ability to do that effectively and, and price competitively and so on is is, is a big one, uh, is a big question. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's a real issue for them right now. And then just the degree of control that the cable companies and the other pay TV companies exert over how their content gets used and the fact that most of them have resisted building, well, all of them actually have resisted building fully fledged apps that kind of replicate the set top box experience um, on, you know, these third party devices, you know, they've, they're fine with, you know, each individual content owner building their own apps and then authenticating through them. But that's a really cumbersome process and a very fragmented experience compared to the traditional sort of electronic program guide and being able to pick which shows you want to watch right now and so on. All right. Well, um, thank you for doing the research on that this week. Um, we'll, uh, it's a good segue, actually, that conversation into the last part of what we're going to talk about today, which is cord cutting. And I, I posted an update about this on the Beyond Devices blog this week, um, just based on numbers that I collect every quarter from the major US pay TV providers. And I see, you see a lot of misinformation about cord cutting in the press. So one of the things I focused on in this piece was the three mistakes that people make when they're covering this stuff. The first is only to cover um, the quarterly results and compare this quarter to last quarter, which is a mistake because it's a hugely cyclical industry uh, with additions going up and down uh, during the course of the year based on when people move, when people finish college for the year, when they go back to college again. And so if you look quarter to quarter, you totally miss the trends because you need to look year on year. The second mistake is that people focus only on the biggest players. Um, so they look at very large cable operators, but they don't look at small ones. And, and actually what's happening is that smaller ones are losing subscribers faster, often to the bigger ones. And so that artificially inflates the numbers if you only focus on the big players. And then the third one is only focusing on certain kinds of players. And so some of the articles focus on cable companies, but ignore the telecoms companies like AT&T and Verizon, ignore to some extent the satellite companies, addition, direct TV, which the latter is now owned by AT&T. 
Um, so those are some of the mistakes. And if you really strip all that away and you look at this stuff the way you should, which is year on year, looking at the broadest set of players you possibly can, uh, then over the last five quarters, every quarter, every quarter the year on year growth in the industry has been less than the quarter before. And, uh, and for the last two quarters now, we've been in negative territory. And this quarter was about half a million uh, net losses uh, of TV subscribers year on year. Um, last quarter, it was half that. So um, it's actually accelerating. Um, and so cord cutting is happening. It's accelerating. If you look at it in the context of household numbers, which are growing, um, then it's even more dramatic because penetration rates are actually shrinking even faster. So it's a real thing. And that's kind of the, the first big point to make here. Um, but uh, you know, the question is just kind of, does that continue? Does that slow down at some point? You know, do you get a wave of kind of cord cutters now who've kind of finally had enough, but then, you know, the mainstream ends up sticking with this stuff through a combination of apathy and not wanting to lose some mainstream programming? And, or does it go in a different direction? And that's really kind of what we wanted to talk about here for the next few minutes. Do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I mean, to answer one of the questions you asked is, you know, is this going to change? I, I, I think it's just going to accelerate. I, I think of cable television as roughly equivalent to CD, music CDs. Um, I mean, it's it's becoming an increasingly archaic way to deliver content, and uh, and so I th I think you're going to see this accelerating. It, what's interesting to me about cord cutting generally is that up until now, um, it's 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 required sacrifice, and I'm speaking as a cord cutter. I think. How long has it been now? It's been four years since my family, since we, you know, canceled our cable subscription. Um, we did it with a combination of strategies. We got a TiVo. Uh, we did oh, we do with that we record over the air channels with. You know, they come in full HD quality, and so we don't really sacrifice anything there. Obviously, we have a Netflix subscription, um, some other online subscriptions. Uh, it helps a lot that I live in a Google Fiber town <laughs> so right but so downloading shows and stuff and streaming them is, is perfectly adequate right but but i mean this has always come with sacrifices um live sports are a problem especially college sports um you know uh, uh if i record something on my tivo i have to pay tivo a bunch of extra money if i want to be able to stream that to a tablet um there, you know, so there, so there are definite costs of being a cord cutter, sacrifices, I should say, but uh, that's changing. It's changing pretty rapidly. I mean, I, I think we're going to look back on HBO doing an over-the-top version of their service as the beginning of the end, as far as traditional mm -hmm. cable yeah. uh, delivery is concerned. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I mean. I, I, their model works because they have a brand and because they have a ton of content. And I just don't know how transferable that model is to other content owners. And I feel like it's going to be, you know, ironically, you know, people talk a lot about a la carte and the idea that you might be able to buy individual packages of channels that are smaller bundles than what we get right now. And the challenge is that most people wouldn't want to pick and choose all the specific channels they want to get. They kind of want the comfort of knowing they can watch whatever's on within, you know, a certain sort of tier. Maybe they don't get all the, you know, premium movie channels or whatever but you know people are used to the idea that if it's on cable then I get it and uh, even though they might only watch seven channels out of the 300 or whatever they get and so I wonder to what extent you know that model can really be broken up by things like HBO Now or whether HBO Now will be 
a complement to kind of a standard package of channels. And you don't know, we don't know what Apple's going to end up doing. We have Sling TV that's out there already with, you know, what looks a lot like a pay TV subscription. It's no coincidence. It's owned by Dish, big satellite provider. Um, if Sony View that's out there with something very similar, the rumors being that Apple's going to do something along those lines too. Um, and the question to my mind is just, you know, to what extent will that be a compelling alternative for somebody, you know, having to buy these things separately when they're still going to have to have a relationship with the cable company or, or the telecoms company for broadband? Um, and what's going to happen to broadband pricing? You know, right now broadband's almost all profit for the cable companies because they cover all the shared costs of their infrastructure through the TV subscription, and it costs almost nothing to add broadband capability to that. But if the TV subscriptions start going away because of cord cutting, then suddenly, you know, where does the margin come from now? You know, all the infrastructure costs now have to be borne by the broadband connection, and if they want to maintain their margins, they're going to have to increase prices on the broadband, especially for people who cut the TV part of the bundle. And you know, what will that do to people's total cost of ownership in the course of a month? So, it's all kinds of barriers here, I think, to some of the alternatives coming along. Um, but I think it's only once we get some reasonable substitute um, that has many of the same features and, and all the same content as the traditional cable bundle that we're actually going to see, you know, significantly higher levels of cord cutting. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not yet clear that that's going to happen. I think the infrastructure problem with cable companies is is going to be addressed either with over the, with wireless broadband connections, you know, that... The, the technology is continuing to improve, and and I think cell phone companies are actually going to be really well positioned to go after Comcast and other sort of you know Time Warner and the the big typical broadband home providers. Um, I also think Google Fiber is going to. I mean, it certainly isn't going to ever control the market. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think that they're going to influence a lot of the way, especially municipalities view broadband. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the truth is right now, cities around the country are clamoring for something like Google Fiber, even if it's not specifically right. the Google yeah, Fiber Yeah, AT&T's been taking advantage of that to a great extent. Yeah, and, and so I think that's going to sort itself out because the infrastructure is going to get cheaper. Um, I don't think we're headed for an a la carte future per se. Um, in fact, I think this is one area where the Apple TV has the potential to be a brand new revenue source for Apple, and you, and you talked about this in the piece you wrote about Apple as a monthly bill, mm. you know. And I'll tell you what I'd love to see is that uh, there are apps for all the individual content providers, uh, you know, that I can install on my Apple TV, and then something like Netflix, I could pay Apple a monthly fee to get full access to all the apps and their content. Hmm. And so I could have limited access to the content of certain apps if I'm not paying Apple. And maybe there's room for a la carte there where all these channels are also offering, offering over the top. Hmm. But I think where Apple's television service could be really uniquely competitive is if it simply said, hey, like people will automatically have access to all your content through a monthly fee. And I think Apple could offer a much better deal to the content providers than Comcast offers. Mm -hmm. And so I could picture a situation where I pay, you know, $40 a month to Apple, and what it does is it essentially is a monthly subscription to give me full access to all of these over-the-top services that all the different content providers have put together. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because you can buy your Netflix subscription through Apple now as well. So you could potentially put it all on your Apple bill, as it were. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, and that's when HBO now came out, that's kind of what I thought Apple might end up doing was just basically act as the sort of storefront for people to buy their own subscriptions, essentially. Not, not that Apple would put it all together, but that through the Apple TV, all these things would be available and then you'd pay for them through your Apple ID um, such that, you know, Apple would be kind of the aggregator in a payment sense, but not in the sense of actually signing all the content deals itself. And I, I still think that could be an interesting alternative if it's unable to kind of put together its own competitive bundle. Yeah, but I don't picture Apple having, and I may be completely wrong on this, but I don't picture Apple having its own dedicated app that is a streaming service like Sling TV. Mm. Um, I, I still think I still think that's the holy grail. I, I still think you know having to dip in and out of apps and stuff is a pain in the neck. I think universal service, uh, universal search helps with that because you just search for something and it automatically pops up whichever app it happens to be in. Yeah. Um, but it still means if you're in the Fox app right now and then you do a universal search for NCIS or whatever, it bounces you out to the CBS app and that takes a lot more time than simply starting to watch it inside the app you're already in. And so I do think there's something to be said for a single universal interface where it's all right there and you don't have to dip in and out of apps and the kind of lag and latency that's associated with that. There, there's no doubt that that's better for consumers. But, mm-hmm. but I mean, imagine CBS having control of its app and the way advertising is delivered through augmented television. Um, you know, the idea is that they may, it, consumers would rather have a simplified app for watching all their content. But mm-hmm. if I was CBS, I would much prefer that everybody watches it through the over-the-top service that I provide through my own custom app. Because yeah. then I can create an advertising experience mm-hmm. the way but I, I want still to. Think, I still so. think there's potential. Because, you know, there's been talk about even with Apple, if Apple to do its own service, these companies will still be delivering the streams and so on. So, you know, I think what one thing that Apple could do uniquely differently would be, you know, the standard sort of EPG, the electronic programming guide that you get with, you know, a Comcast or a Dish or whatever. You get, you know, lots of lines and stuff. You, know, you can scroll up and down and left and right, essentially. And there's no branding. There might be a tiny network logo on the left side. But, you know, if you could still have that, but then as an alternative to that, still have like a Fox page and a CBS page and so on. And you know that the experience is slightly different when you're watching those things. But the point is that they're all wrapped into a fairly consistent sort of interface. I think you can get the best of both worlds, is my point, I guess, where you can meet the needs of the content owners and the needs of consumers. And I think, you know, Apple's, you know, really good at this kind of stuff. You know, I wrote a post, I can remember, 18 months ago or something like that called Apple Destroyer of Fragmentation. And, you know, there's so many examples where Apple's taking something that's horribly fragmented and it's the one player that has the clout, um, especially because of its kind of consumer reputation, to bring this stuff together. You know, the iTunes Music Store was a great example of that. You know, bring all these record labels together. You know, Apple Music did it again with a new business model. Um, you know, it's done this before. And I feel like that's still, as I say, that's, that's still what I'm holding out for. Sure. <laughs> um, but I just don't know how realistic it is for Apple to actually be able to get it done. Yeah, I think I, I honestly think advertising is the, is the thing that stands in Apple's way. Because they haven't succeeded in, in sort of defragmenting the um, the advertising market. I mean, iAd has not been successful, at least not. No, yet. and I think Apple's conflicted about advertising. I think that's one of the reasons. Yeah, but that's at the all the stuff you have to do to make advertising effective, like tracking and retargeting and so on, all makes Apple very uncomfortable. And that's at the heart of how uh, the content has to get onto the Apple TV. I mean, it has to be. Mm-hmm. There has to be advertising. I, I don't think there's yeah. a way to sustain the model otherwise. 
and app and Apple being weird about advertising, I think, is going to stand in their way. And yeah, that's, that's why something I, I've written about before too. And that's why I could picture these sort of standalone, over-the-top apps being the way that content providers finally agree to mm-hmm. come around Apple. Um, right. Is because they'll maintain control over the thing that to them is most important. That's where they make their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, in the interest of time, we'll leave it there for today. But. Good conversation there. It picks up on a number of threads that we've talked about before. It kind of moves the moves the conversation forward a bit as well. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We appreciate you being with us. Um, we'll be back again next week with our usual format, including our weekly pick, which we skipped this week. But uh, we'll have that again for you next week and, and more interesting discussion on other topics. So thanks and talk to you again next week.